Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 1 Samuel chapter 13, and it will be important to have your Bible available to follow along as we go. We'll start with a question. What does it mean to be foolish, according to the Bible? As far as the scriptures are concerned, what makes for a fool? Because in verse 13 of our passage this morning, Samuel, the old prophet of the Lord, says to Saul, the first king of Israel, you have done foolishly. Why? What did Saul do exactly? Well, it turns out that that specific question will take most of the time we have this morning to answer. But as for the general concept, well, that's pretty clear. You only have to continue reading the words of Samuel in verse 13 to see it. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, Samuel says, with which he commanded you. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. That's what made Saul a fool. And brothers and sisters, that's what makes us fools as well, according to the scriptures. Psalm 14, verse 1 is famous for the way it expresses this truth. You've likely heard it before. The psalmist writes in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But consider carefully the language there. The fool says in his heart there is no God. It's about the heart. It's in the heart the fool says there is no God. So that one commentator puts it well, I think, saying of that verse from the Psalms, the issue is the acknowledgement of God not just in my understanding, but in my consciousness in my desires, in my anxieties, in my ups and in my downs, in my inmost thoughts, and therefore in my character and in the things I say and do. It's about the heart. You have done foolishly, Samuel says to King Saul. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Which means the question to which we now turn our attention for some time is that more specific one. What exactly did Saul do? Or rather, what did he not do? Now, if you're just joining us this morning, we've been in 1 Samuel now for some weeks. And if you've been here the last few weeks, you know that recently we've been tracking with the story of Saul. We started that back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where we saw the demands of the elders of Israel to have a king like all the nations, they say to Samuel. We saw that in making that request, the text made clear that the people were rejecting the Lord as their king. Samuel told them that, but they insist. And so the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. 
So we've been reading that story. The selection and the private anointing of Saul in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel and up through the halfway point in chapter 10. Then the public selection of Saul to be the king by lot in the rest of chapter 10, and they acclaim him as their king. The confirmation then of his selection in the victory over the Ammonites in chapter 11. And then Saul's inauguration at the covenant renewal ceremony in Gilgal at the end of chapter 11 through to chapter 12, where we spent last week. All of which <laughs> then brings us to the beginning of Saul's reign as king in chapter 13. That's what verse 1 of this chapter is meant to signal because verse 1 of chapter 13 looks, at least in the Hebrew, it looks like a version of the typical formula found in the Old Testament at the beginning of the reign of a king, the regnal formula. Usually the regnal formula in the scriptures gives you the age of the king at the time that that king of his accession followed then by the duration of that king's reign. And there's lots of examples of that if you read through the book of Kings, but you find it even as early as 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 4, where you would read, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. It's the age followed by the length of his reign. But given the way the ESV translates verse 1, you can tell something's odd about this. Verse 1 in the ESV says of our chapter, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, then continuing into verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Now, I was hoping that the ESV Bibles we had on the table had the footnotes, but they don't. So in some ESV Bibles, there are footnotes when there are textual issues here. And if you have one that has a footnote, that you brought yourself because the ones we have don't have those footnotes. The note gives you a translation of the Hebrew and it literally says, Saul was one year old when he became king. <laughs> Actually, it literally says he was the son of a year and he reigned two years over Israel. Well, okay, to be honest, it's not entirely clear what one should do about this. There are some Greek manuscripts at this point that give Saul an age instead, which is what we'd expect. And there are some English translations that follow those manuscripts. So if you're carrying a different translation, it may say Saul was 30 years old. It's not in the Hebrew. Most scholars seem to think that there were numbers that had been left out in the Hebrew or that had been omitted at some point. No one really knows, but the ESV may be right. It certainly makes for an unusual regnal formula, but if they're right, then the point of the verse becomes more about the timing of what we read in chapter 13, and it draws our attention right back to where Saul began in chapter 10. Because to say that Saul lived for one year and then became king, as the ESV has it, 
is to refer to the time between when Saul was designated to become king, since he hadn't been born into a line of kings, but when he had been designated as such, when Samuel anointed him in chapter 10 in private, when he was also given some specific crucial instructions that we'll come back to in a moment. It's the time between that point and when he began to reign at Gilgal at the end of chapter 11. The ceremony whose terms we looked at last week spelled out in chapter 12. In other words, according to how the ESV renders verse 1, it had been about a year from chapter 10 to chapter 12. And then from chapter 12 to the events now in chapter 13, where we are this morning, is another two years in terms of how the ESV does this. That's the second half of verse 1. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Now, the truth is, there's not a lot of certainty regarding the details of verse 1. I'm inclined to go with the ESV, though, because it takes us right back to the events of chapter 10. And it's there we need to go to understand what happens in chapter 13. Now, you're just going to have to bear with me because I got to do a lot of work to set up what's happening in chapter 13. Saul assembles this army of 3,000 men in verse 2 of chapter 13. Right? And he divides them into two groups under the command of himself and his son Jonathan. First time we meet Jonathan in the text, though we're going to hear a lot more about him. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, and 1,000, it says, were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. Notice here that it's Jonathan who's in Gibeah. Remember Gibeah? Gibeah is Saul's hometown. And it's back in chapter 10 that we learn a bit about Gibeah and what Saul was supposed to do there. So now, turn back there, if you would, to chapter 10. We need to spend some time in chapter 10 to set up what's happening in chapter 13. If you're there in chapter 10, it's been a few weeks, so you, just to review, Samuel anoints Saul at the beginning of chapter 10. And then he gives Saul three specific signs that he says will happen to confirm this anointing. Remember this? Verse 2, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin, and they'll say something about donkeys and your father. <laughs> then verse 3, three men going to Bethel will meet you at the Oak of Tabor and will give you two loaves of bread. I mean, it's very specific stuff. And then verse 5, chapter 10, verse 5. After that, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, which almost universally scholars say is the same Gibeah that Jonathan goes to with his men in chapter 13. It's just spelled slightly differently. Samuel says to Saul, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, his hometown where there is a garrison of the Philistines. Note that. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down. And, and then you'll remember how Saul's told that the Spirit of God will rush upon him and he will prophesy. But then look carefully at chapter 10, verse 7. Samuel says, Now when these signs meet you, that is the three he's just told Saul about. 
Do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Now stop there. What does that mean? What was Saul supposed to do exactly after these three signs that were to confirm his anointing? I spent a lot of time this week trying to answer that question. Because when Saul came to Gibeah and the thing had happened with the prophets, Saul was then to do what your hand finds to do, Samuel says. What was that? Well, here's what I think after this week of trying to answer that question. I'm pretty sure Saul was supposed to attack the Philistine garrison at Gibeah when he returned home from his anointing. I think that's what Samuel was telling him to do and that he could do it knowing that the Lord was with him. Here's how one scholar puts it. Quote, do what your hand finds to do does not mean that Saul would be free to do whatever he liked. Rather, the words indicate that there would be a task for Saul to do. The idiom, do what your hand finds to do, is also found in Judges 9, verse 33, where the context makes clear that it refers to military action against an enemy. Together with the promise that God would be with him, again, a promise that is associated with battle against Israel's enemies, for example, in Judges 6, verse 12, Samuel's words were a summons to Saul once the spirit of the Lord had rushed upon him to act against the enemies of Israel. The Philistine garrison at Gibeah Elohim presented an obvious opportunity to do that. And if that's right, and I hope it is because the whole rest of the sermon hinges on this being right. If that's what Samuel meant, in verse 7 of chapter 10, then look at what comes next in verse 8 of chapter 10. Then, Samuel says, then, after you've done that, then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Having instructed Saul to attack the garrison at Gibeah, if, if this reading is correct, Samuel knew that wouldn't bring the Philistine threat to an end. And so Samuel's second instruction to Saul in verse 8 of chapter 10 was to go to Gilgal and wait for further direction. Meaning further direction about what? Well, about how to lead Israel against the Philistines. Right? You remember what the Lord said to Samuel back in chapter 9, verse 16, before Samuel ever lays eyes on Saul. The Lord said to Samuel, you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. And we've seen over and over again the last few weeks, despite the people's hope that they would have a king to go out before them and fight their battles, we've seen that it's the Lord who fights for his people. So, as the Old Testament scholar Phil Long explains, the king in Israel had responsibility for military affairs, but only as directed by the prophet. 
whose responsibility it was to receive and communicate the divine initiative, kingship in Israel, unlike that of the surrounding nations, was acceptable only insofar as the king was willing to acknowledge his subordination to the great king and his designated spokesman. In other words, the prophet. Saul's leadership of Israel right from the start was to be subordinate to Samuel. He was to heed the words of the Lord. Did he? Did he follow the commands given him through Samuel? Do you remember what Saul did back in chapter 10? After he received the three unmistakable, clear signs that the word of the Lord is true. He finishes his prophesying after the spirit of God had come to him and he came to the high place, it says in verse 13 of chapter 10 in Gibeah, and he did nothing. And his uncle, surprisingly, is there and finds out that Saul had seen Samuel, and he, he says, he asks his nephew Saul, Saul, what did Samuel say to you? And Saul says, nothing. He says nothing about the kingdom. There are two clear instructions in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 10, or I'm suggesting they're clear. And those two instructions go together, you see. And since Saul never fulfilled the first one, the second one never applied. That's how I understand this. And here we are now in chapter 13. And it's Jonathan who has a thousand men in Gibeah. And then we read in verse 3 that it's Jonathan who defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Jonathan did it, not Saul. The surprise of the narrative is that Jonathan does it. It's some two or three years later now. And finally, someone's carried out the command originally given Saul in verse 7 of chapter 10. And I know the details just keep piling up here. And I don't mean to add to the complexity to overwhelm you. But I have to at least close this loop so that you understand it. And I want to point out that it's a serious understanding that the name Geba there in verse 3 of chapter 13, the place Geba, where it says Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines, that's just an alternate name for Gibeah. Not everybody says that, but enough, and I've read enough of it to think, I think that's right. That in other words, we're talking about the same place, the same place where Saul was told to take action and didn't. Now Jonathan's done it. And then Saul blows the trumpet in a summons to war because he knows what's coming next. The Philistines will be rising up against Israel. Look at verse 4, chapter 13. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Oh, really? They heard it said, but... That's not actually what happened, right? It was Jonathan. And then, I mean, in a couple weeks when we come to chapter 14, you'll see again, it's going to be Jonathan leading the charge.
because something's not right here. Still, the people are called to join Saul where? At Gilgal, of course. The place where he was supposed to go way back in chapter 10, verse 8, after he had taken action against the Philistines in Gibeah, which he never did. The Philistines are assembling a massive army of chariots and warriors at Michmash. The text says it's troops like sand on the seashore in multitude. I mean, how's that for a descriptive? And Israel's afraid. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, the people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns. And some go over the Jordan and Saul's still at Gilgal. And verse 7 ends, all the people followed him trembling. Which just doesn't sound a lot like chapter 11, does it? When Saul had been energized by God's spirit and had risen to meet the challenge of the Ammonites and had led the people of Israel to victory. No, not now. Now here are these people with little confidence in either Saul's leadership or in the Lord's protection. What's going on? It's Saul's in Gilgal, and, and you see now why he is there, if my read of chapter 10 is right. The instruction to go to Gilgal and to wait for Samuel was contingent on having attacked the Philistine garrison at Gibeah, which Saul evidently is at least taking credit for at this point. Saul never did that. But it wasn't until then Jonathan does it that going to Gilgal to await Samuel is the appropriate thing to do. And there he is. And recall now what Samuel had said back in verse 8 of chapter 10. This is very important. Samuel says to him, chapter 10, verse 8, Behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Samuel doesn't mean he'll show Saul how to make the sacrifices. That's what I thought when I first read this. No, Samuel's the one who has to make the offerings, not Saul. Saul is to wait for Samuel to come in order to know what to do about the Philistines. You see, why? Because God's prophet is going to give him God's guidance for the Philistine war for which God had made him king. Saul is to wait on the word of the Lord regarding what to do next. But then Saul hadn't done what the Lord had said to do in the first place. Do we really think it'll be any different now? Samuel is the bearer of Yahweh's word. Saul's task is to wait for it. Wait for it. Instead, he proceeds without it. Now, it's true that he did wait. And the situation was desperate, and Samuel didn't come, and the people were scattering from him, verse 8 of our text says. And the military situation is more and more precarious by the hour, and Saul knows if he waits any longer, he might have no army left. And it's the 11th hour of day 7, and I mean, Samuel's not coming, is he? Is he? 
So what does Saul do at the 11th hour of day seven? He says, bring me, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt <coughs> offering, which is what he knew Samuel was planning to do, right? Obviously he knew it. He remembered it. The burnt offering and the peace offerings. Did Saul even understand their purpose? I mean, what do you think Saul's trying to accomplish in making these offerings himself? Obedience to the Lord? Or just trying to get done himself what Samuel said he would do? And he never even makes it to the peace offerings, does he? Because verse 10 says, as soon as he'd finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. In fact, there wouldn't be any peace offerings that day. As far as we know, Samuel doesn't seem to offer them at all. Of course he doesn't, because none of this is right. Samuel had said, Saul was to wait until I come to you. Samuel says, he was supposed to make the offerings, not Saul. And now he'd come, and the text reads in a way that suggests it's the end of day seven. And he's not pleased. What have you done? Samuel says. Maybe we shouldn't be too surprised when Saul now gives his defensive response. He knows what he did was wrong. But there's no humble confession, is there? Where's Saul's heart? Verse 11, Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the day's anointed, it's your fault, Samuel. Waiting until the last minute. I mean, how could I have known? And I saw that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, and I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, and I forced myself. And the sense is that he knew he shouldn't do it, but he did it anyway. And I forced myself and offered the burnt offering, and the text says he was a fool to do it. <laughs> to seek the favor of the Lord by breaking the commandment of the Lord? And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Now, think about that, because you could look at this, and from all kinds of angles, it might seem like Saul had done the only thing he reasonably could have, right? I mean, wouldn't it have been more foolish to do nothing? His people are leaving him. The Philistines are ready to attack. Israel's completely outnumbered, lacking in military technology, as we learn later in the chapter. So even as Saul realizes his only hope is in the Lord, he breaks the command the Lord had given him in an attempt to solicit the Lord's assistance. And the thing is, we get it, you and I, don't we? Don't you get it? I mean, I, isn't that why we likely 
kind of feel for Saul here? I mean, just be honest. I'm kind of assuming you do. You kind of feel for Saul in this juncture. I do. <laughs> I mean, I can see it. I can see that to obey God in those circumstances would have required Saul to trust God against every instinct, against every evidence, against every aspect of his experience at that moment. Brothers and sisters, we have to say trusting God is not an easy thing to do. You might even argue that in many cases it looks foolish to trust and obey God. At least if you measure that according to your circumstances, it looks foolish. But we cannot escape that Samuel holds Saul accountable in spite of Saul's attempts to justify his behavior because here's the thing. Saul had allowed circumstances to determine his actions rather than the commandment of the Lord. He operated out of fear, but not the fear of the Lord. And that made him a fool. Oh, we get it. The circumstances are alarming. But this was an extremely important test. Do you see that now, given what we've talked about this morning, where we've been in the last weeks together? The issue that's been running through everything since chapter 8 is whether Saul will be a king under God or a king in place of God. Was he prepared to wait on the Lord in submission and trust no matter what the circumstances might be? Or was he someone who viewed himself as above the word of the Lord? That's what's at the core here, because that's what matters most in terms of being the king of Israel, right? It did not matter that Saul attempted here to justify his disobedience by saying he was asking for the Lord's help or that he was offering sacrifices prior to battle. We must not confuse genuine piety with religious words and acts. It's not Saul's religious words and acts in and of themselves that determine the integrity of his behavior. The important question is whether or not what we do arises out of love for God and trust in his word. And if you've read ahead in 1 Samuel, you know where this is going. The consequences of Saul's disobedience are clear. Verse 14, Samuel says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, Saul, but not now. The Lord has sought out a man, watch this language, after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In chapter 13, the Lord now rejects Saul's line for the future kingship in Israel, and we're looking ahead already to David, aren't we? But in chapter 15, in a few weeks' time, we see that the Lord will reject Saul himself as king after yet another transgression. And do you know what Samuel will say to Saul on that occasion in chapter 15, verse 22? He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You hear it? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. The text suggests it was Saul's lack of confidence and trust in the Lord that led him to make the fatally foolish decision that day. And I don't know if this might have occurred to you already, but as we close, I think it's verse 15 that's the worst moment of all for Saul in this chapter. Because there our author says, And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. Now facing the overwhelming military disadvantages spelled out in the remainder of chapter 13, what's the real danger? What's the real danger that Saul's facing? It's in the fact that Saul has now isolated himself from what he needed most, the word of Yahweh to guide his way. So Saul can number the troops, but that's all he can do. Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. Saul's on his own. And that is surely the most terrifying thing of all. Now look at the story moves forward in chapter 14 in two weeks time we'll be there. I'll just say this. That there would not be any king in the history of Israel who fully trusted God. Who fully obeyed God in every circumstance, no matter the circumstance. David wouldn't. Well, there's a distinction between Saul and David. We'll come to that. But there is no king that is fully obedient. Except for one except for great David's greater son. It is of that king that the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 5, verses 7 to 9, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.